Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Hedge Fund Huddle, now an award-winning podcast. Pause for applause. Yep, that's right. We recently picked up an award from the Gramercy Institute for Financial Content Marketing. So thank you, everyone, for listening. For those of you that haven't listened to us before, this podcast aims to peel back the curtain of hedge funds and delve into how they work, why they work, and why they continue to be so successful. I'm your host, Jamie McDonald. I was a PM at SAC Capital, now obviously 0.72, but now I turn the microphone on those still working in the industry to try and find out the latest trends and insights. Basically, whether you work at a hedge fund or indeed want to start one, this is some great content for you. Now, today's topic is so relevant, not just because it's growing so fast as a trend, but because of the ramifications it will have and is already having, to be honest, on markets and hedge fund fee structures and the sell side is now having to adapt. Luckily, to help us figure all that out, I have two experts with me. John Sabral, who's currently COO at Stillpoint Investments, which is a hedge fund here in New York, and Brian Jensen, who's an MD at Elseg Tora, a trading outsourced solution business. In fact, I even hesitate to say trading because they do so much more than that. But let me stop talking. Brian, so let's start with you. Tell us about your background and how Elseg Tora fits into it all. I started my career at Prudential Securities in 2000 on the fixed income liaison desk. And after that, joined a Asia multi-strat fund called Evolution Capital Management in 2002. From there, we spun Tora out in 2005. And since inception of Tora, I've managed the outsourced trading business. Tora is a global financial technology firm. We provide risk management, portfolio management, and execution management systems. And we were acquired by LSEG last year. And that's what I'm doing now. Now, I'm just looking at a report that came out in Q2 of 2022 from Coalition Greenwich saying, and then in the last four years, the number of outsourced trading vendors has grown by more than 400%. And I'm guessing that doesn't look like it's slowing down now. Do you want to just give us some insights into why the growth is so large? During COVID, certainly there was a, a need for contingency trading services, backup trading services. I, I should say that period was when you would begin to see a lot of these reports coming out. But I think there is a paradigm shift when we think about how the asset management community has considered outsourcing the trading function. And that's kind of what's brought some of these larger players into the space. If we go back, outsourced trading goes back probably over 30 years. That period, most of the time, there were just independent providers. You didn't have the large institutions like custodians, prime brokers, bulge bracket banks involved in the space. Of course, we would fall into the, the other category, which is we're unique in that we're a uh, global technology and data analytics firm of which there, there really aren't any other players in that vertical. Great. Thanks, Brian. We'll get into those topics a little bit more in a sec. But John, let's bring you in. Tell us a bit about your time at Goldman, what your role was there and what you're doing at Stillpoint. Yeah, sure. So I started my career actually in the back office of a, a company called Merrill Lynch, which uh, no longer exists. But I, I worked for a year in their back office just out of college and then shifted over to Goldman just a year later, where I joined our prime services business, which really functioned as a service provider to hedge funds, broker dealers, and proprietary trading firms. So I started my career in New York, uh, relocated to Hong Kong in 2008, a very interesting time to move halfway around the world. But I spent just under nine years in our Hong Kong office, still within our prime services business. 
So I've been in and around the broker dealer and hedge fund space my entire life. In 2021, I chose to go off on a new venture. I left Goldman and joined my partner, Eric Wong, who's the founder and CIO of Stillpoint Investments. We are a equity fundamental, China-focused, long-short hedge fund focused on the, the public equity markets, launched in April of last year. And I serve as the, the chief operating officer for all things non-investment. And I joined him in 2021 to get things up and running. And it's been a fun ride ever since. Now, John, I guess we'll have to hear about your Hong Kong stories another time, but I, I do want to hear them. They sound fun. But you're in the perfect position, having been in prime brokerage, you know, working on the sell side of things for so long. And now here you are in the hot seat looking to build and branch out this hedge fund yourself. I'm dating myself here, but 10 years ago when I was working at SAC and we were doing our own trading, it was really an all or nothing affair. Either you had the scale and the numbers made sense for you to have in-house trading, or you were a smaller sized asset under management firm and you would look at outsourcing opportunities. But it seems like over the last 10 years, it's become much more nuanced. It's not an all or nothing decision. So both from your perspective when you were at Goldman and now as your role at COO, how has that dynamic changed? Yeah, I think from my perspective at Goldman, I had a, a, a somewhat unique, I think, view of this space because I actually serviced this client segment as my client base. So we acted as the clearing participant for a number of the broker dealers on the street that were offering outsourced trading. And this dates all the way back to 2003, 2004, when I first started and was covering some of the shops that Brian was alluded to. This has been around for a long period of time. It's nothing necessarily new. However, I think the structure and the value add has changed as well on a broader scale. So I think bulge bracket sales trading desks have shrunk. You've had electronification of the equity markets. You've had globalization on the investment side, which, which requires time zone and local market expertise. So you've seen that depending on your strategy and your structure, the value of an outsourced solution, whether that's full stop or consultancy basis, or just an added value over and above what you have in-house is, is becoming much more prevalent. Are you willing to share the kind of decisions you're making you know, now in terms of how to structure the still point? Yeah. And I think this goes, certainly it applies to outsource trading. I think it also applies to other functions that hedge funds have started to do more outsourcing of as opposed to keeping in-house. And I think it's really about value based on needs. And, and that goes for all outsourced decisions, but I'll, I'll stick to more trading for this particular conversation. So on the trading side, I think what's important is to understand what you need out of the role. Right. And that's going to be different depending on your portfolio manager about the, by their style, by the markets they're trading, by their, their execution style, about what benchmark they're targeting. So there's various different factors that go into that uh, sort of equation. And then when I think about outsource and, and when I always thought about outsource when I was building this business a little over a year ago was, okay, well, can I get that? What's the best optimal value I can get? Right. Am I going to be able to get a better deal for a better cost? and still meet my needs, right? But you can't throw away what you need. You always have to work towards that solution. And then you find the, the most value in your in, in the different offerings that are available to you. And I will say that to your point earlier about 400% growth in the space, I think if you went back 15, 20 years when I started covering it, there was probably like four shops, right? Like, mm -hmm. So now there's a lot more out there. And with that, they all have slightly different offerings. They have all have slightly different verticals. So all of that you have to take into consideration and find where, where can I get the most value as a package sort of deal. And just one quick question, John, before we move back to Brian, to what extent are your decisions driven by your investors who want lower fees? They want a more global product. Can you talk a little bit about how investors influence your decision? 
Yeah, at the end of the day, investors are our customers, right? That is the asset management business. So they have the final say in, in everything, right? So I think the way that I thought about it as I was building it was, and as I was selecting service providers, as I was choosing which functions that I wanted to keep in versus which I wanted to outsource, I had always thought of it through the lens of an investor, right? So an investor comes to me during the operational due diligence process. They might have a lot of questions about why I made a selection, whether that's on an individual firm or that's on like a choice in terms of what's going to be in-house versus outsourced. And I always thought about making those decisions through that lens, meaning if I can't make the explanation, if I don't have a good solid story, if I can't stand behind it, then I wouldn't make that decision, right? And I think that's ultimately how asset managers should be thinking about keeping their customers happy, but also meeting their needs as best they can. Brian, coming back to you, you mentioned the grouping, the outsourced solutions business between, let's call them the bulge bracket firms, prime brokerage, custodians, and then independents like yourself. How has the gross differed between those three groups? And what effect is that actually having on the sell side and how the sell side is actually having to adapt for this growth in, in outsource trading? So growth in the space, clearly it's been from larger institutions entering. Interpreting your question correctly, when there's large, we think about when large brokers are entering the space and are now, let's say, on the other side of the fence, interacting with the sell side, that it can, let's just say when we started doing this, it was a niche business, which sell side brokers didn't really pay much attention to. There really wasn't much concern about we weren't signing tri-party agreements that we sign now, right? There wasn't really reticence to engage where I think now the sell side, given the factors that John already mentioned as far as electronification and juniorization of roles and looking at the biggest thing being fee compression, commission compression, all of that, you know, that's made the large brokers much more aware of outsourcing as being a potential competition to what they're doing, that just from my perspective, that's been a big change, right? Because of institutionalization of the space, it's increasingly important what model you're following and whether or not you're an extension of your client's internal desk or you're acting as a broker on their behalf. One of the reasons I was asking this is it just sounds from a kind of regulatory or even sort of legal perspective, a very fine line to be walking if you have traders on both sides of the fence. And I know you guys are trying to be very careful what you say as, as we all as we all are. Look, I think brokers have a different set of challenges, right? Because if you're working with the hedge fund manager in a fiduciary capacity, as opposed to as a broker or agency capacity, those are two sort of different things. I think they're entering the space because it's attractive and to Brian's point, commissions have been compressing for the past 30 years. I mean, ever since it went from, you know, teenies to decimalization, commission has been under pressure, right? So commission compression, if you still want a bigger share of the wallet, you have to participate in some of these things to continue to maintain your portion of the wallet, which is why I think the bulge brackets are becoming more there. And I think that in combination with the fact that it's become more acceptable. And we were just talking about LPs thinking about it through the lens of an investor, right? Going back 10, 15 years ago, it might be looked at not as ideal, right? So maybe acceptable for a startup, but not for a large, you know, institutional setup, multi-billion dollar. Not, not just LPs, but asset allocators as well. Well, yeah, the asset allocators. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think th those asset allocators have warmed to the model. And in combination with that, you've seen traditional broker sales trading desks shrink or become younger, if I mentioned earlier, in terms of expertise. And that's created this hole in the market, which I think outsource trading has really grown into really over the course of 
probably the last five to 10 years. Yeah, I think initially, um, I won't name them by name, but one of the largest outsourced independence, when they started doing this in the late 90s, what they offered was scale to smaller managers, right? Part of that scale is redistribution of information to smaller managers. And they're still known for that, being a conduit to a large broker network. But what that means now to the brokers, to the sell side, given this uh, margin compression they've experienced, there's a lot more concern about where this information is being distributed and whether the end client of that outsourced provider actually pays for it. In contrast, like what we do, we're a pure extension where we're not acting as a broker network. We're not redistributing to clients that don't interact with them. And it's important because you think the role that we see it as is being the eyes and ears of the portfolio manager, right? So, and in that capacity, we're very dependent on brokers being open to sharing with us and viewing us as being no different from the end client that we represent. In all these cases, where we're acting on a complementary or supplementary basis, we respect the relationship that the broker has with the end client the end, and trading desk as well, right? We're not trying to step in between and be the name. Well, let's talk a bit about the cross-regional aspect of outsourcing trading, which I guess is a very attractive proposition. I think I'm trying to find it in the report now. Again, it was from uh, Coalition Greenwich that PMs and asset managers are increasingly looking abroad for alpha. And to the extent that outsource trading can help, not just with lower cost, but with local expertise, even the kind of settlement issues. I mean, I think that's something else we should touch on is there's Obviously, a, a logistical aspect of this is you just don't want to spend hours trying to settle all these trades, particularly in some markets, which you may not know as well. Brian, can you perhaps talk a little bit about that? Clients who come to you who want to start trading in Asia and what products or solutions you offer? I think the driver we see for international, and, and I'd like to, to lead with, in that report you referenced, two-thirds of managers felt that outsourcing their trading would improve access to liquidity. And over 60% found that it could improve execution quality. I think it's important to consider it's it's not outsourcing relative to insourcing always. It's also what's the value of having anyone in the seat, right? There's clients that would hand their order overnight to a broker and maybe not see the value of having active execution. Not to say that's always wrong, right? I think when you're dealing with especially illiquid securities where liquidity is a, an important factor in execution. Having a human in the seat acting on your behalf with discretion is important. And very simplistically, right? You hand it over overnight to one broker, you're exposed to that broker's liquidity. That broker's not sending it to another broker, right? You need someone in the seat to do that and to do it in a, um, a strategic way, right? Not exposing your entire order to one broker, being able to figure out who's axed in that name. Like for example, in a market that has foreign investor limits, right? That some of these emerging markets are very insular and have local liquidity pools. Coming in as a, a foreigner into that market and being out loud with a broker can have significant execution impact, right? So being tactical about how you go about that which is a lot different than in the US where you're pinging an ATS to see if there's liquidity, right? If you think about the market structure in the US, there's 13 exchanges, over 60 dark pools. That whole fragmentation is kind of what drove the growth of algorithms in the space because they were needed to handle best execution requirements within that very complex structure, right? What we see in Asia, if you think about 40% of exchange of volume is off exchange in the US, I think it's maybe like less than 5% in Hong Kong, 
is in the dark. Japan's 8%. I think China, there is no dark market. When we think about when we go through cycles like the one we're in now in China, which as you know, it's it's out of favor. Liquidity is very constrained. One of the major brokers in Hong Kong put their flows out last week and the largest ticket they had was less than 5 million US. It's one of the developed markets there where we've seen broker aggregators also dry up doing 10% of the volume they were doing a few years ago, right? So in liquidity constrained, high volatility markets, I think the value of a trader in the seat, especially uh, pertinent and how can we complement an existing desk or work with a portfolio manager who may feel that there is no need for a trader? First, I want to acknowledge what you said at the beginning, which is effectively that there is more of a globalization for hedge fund managers, right? Like you look at US funds, you'll see way more international exposure in US alternative funds, hedge funds, whatever you want to call them, than you ever have historically, right? So there has been a shift to more globalization in attempts to, you know, to your point, to find alpha, uh, wherever that may be. Now, there's two things that I think jump out at me. And Brian really spent the most time on fact two. Fact one is the more simplistic one where you're dealing in a, a multi-time zone world. Like, what does that mean? Are you going to hire somebody who's going to be a night trader? What's the quality of life of that person going to be? Are they going to be the only person in the office? Are you going to have to pay a premium for it if you are trading globally? But more importantly than a time zone thing, I think is what Brian was alluding to, which is really local market expertise. All equity markets are not created equally. That China trades very differently than the US market trades. So I think having that level of expertise, that market microstructure knowledge, that local rules knowledge, whether that's operational or compliance, Brian mentioned foreign ownership limitations, all of these things are things that to a, you know, maybe a US-based investment advisor or a portfolio manager who just loves this name and the fundamentals behind it, but really doesn't understand what the implementation is going to look like. That's where you're looking for that consultancy type service where you can get a, an outsourced provider that has that expertise, that has that domestic on the ground presence that could fill that gap that you might not have. Yeah, very good point. Actually, I was just thinking on that consultancy side of things, Brian, to what extent do you sort of hold a mirror up back at some of your hedge funds and clients and say, listen, I've seen the platforms you're using. I've seen the algorithms. I've seen the trading platform you're using. If you came to us, this is what we would recommend. And this is how much money we could save you. And time, I guess, is obviously another major aspect. Is that something that you do too? Yes. Well, we within LSEGTOR, we have a team that does quantitative best execution analysis. And they consult with both our clients and the technology clients on their execution methodology, looking at their benchmark, looking at which algos they select, and then also looking at things like Alpha at different times of the day, how are they executing? Are they executing on the close, on the open, spreading over the day? So that's something that we've done extensively with clients. We've, of course, been talking mainly about long, short equity hedge funds up until now. And I'd be interested to know what other strategies you speak mostly to. But just on the long, short equity one, and then I'd love you to talk about other strategies. Does the change in time horizon, which I feel has happened over the last five, 10 years, made a difference to your business as in outsource trading. What I mean by that is, you know, when I was in the business, our time horizons were very short. And I feel like now they're just getting longer and longer. There's more algorithms and bots in play. There's more volatility, but ideas tend to work out well in the medium term and less well in the short term. I wonder if that's a trend you're seeing. Uh, and then, yeah, if you could just talk a little bit about other strategies who, who come uh, knocking at your door, that'd be great. When it comes to, well, you're speaking of very short-term momentum style trading, 
It still exists. I think John can speak to this more than me, but I think it's definitely being dominated by more quant type firms. That being said, I think a lot of that sort of execution is not being outsourced. So if you think about the importance of execution, obviously shorter time horizon execution is a much bigger component of the overall alpha of the trade, right? Where stretching out, I think even for long-term investors, execution is important, right? If we think over maybe not as much on one trade, but over a large number of trades, it adds up and it's especially important on a relative basis. Our clients are mostly long, short and long only with medium to longer term horizons. Multi-strat or event-driven firm, the trader and the PM are often synonymous. So if we're helping them, it's definitely on like an overnight supplementary basis where you see less of pure outsourcing or complete outsourcing in that space where for equity long short, that's the space where I think there's most demand for this because of it's a portfolio manager centric model. The role that we're providing is execution. It's nuanced in a lot of these markets. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. John, so I'm looking again at this report from Coalition Greenwich that came out Q2 of this year, top internal challenges in the next three years. And I wonder if you could comment from where you sit. 59% of asset managers said performance. I guess that's always going to be pretty high on the list. Talent management at 50%. Just interested relating to this topic or not about how easy you're finding it to, to find talent. Rising costs, 44%, I guess, very investor LP driven. Data management at 35%. Technology at 31%. Perhaps you could just talk a little bit about what challenges you see over the next few years? Yeah, I mean, capital raise is always going to be, and performance are always going to be the first two, right? Like it's all about going out and finding investors that are interested in your strategy and aligned with your interests. And obviously that comes with positive performance. Those are by far top of the list in terms of what keeps me up at night. But human capital is a real thing. You've seen, especially in the hedge fund space, you've actually seen a very small group of players becoming very, very large by both AUM perspective, as well as just the size and number of teams and portfolio managers. I'm talking about really multi-manager, multi-strat space. So as a result of that, it creates this vacuum where a lot of talent is going in that direction, which makes it for smaller managers, sometimes a little bit more difficult to compete, right? And when I say smaller managers, I'm not talking about small by stance of AUM. I mean, like smaller organization. You're talking about multi-thousand people companies. It's much more institutional versus your 10-person shop or your five-person shop, which could, those places could easily be in multi-billion dollar funds. So how does that fit into this conversation? I think it comes into play because it's one less headache from an ATR perspective. Like you've got somebody in-house, where's your redundancy? What happens if this person gets hit by a bus or picks up and quits for more pay elsewhere? What are you going to do then? You got, you're back out searching. With an outsourced solution, you're getting like almost economies of scale. And I've had actually, uh, not uh, South Korea specifically, but other outsource providers where my primary coverage left, but there's somebody else right there that knows me, knows my account, and nothing changes, right? Like all the processes are the same, everything is. So... You become a little bit less people dependent, although obviously you always have your favorites of people who you like to work with. But I think not having that HR headache, and actually, I think this is a very US well-known thing. I mean, we're in an overemployment situation with massive wage inflation. If you're trying to run a lean shop, that becomes very challenging in this current environment. Yeah. I haven't actually seen the numbers. Is there specific numbers for wage inflation within finance? I don't know. I'm sure there's statistics. I don't know them off the top. 
in my head. But yes, I can't imagine. So I look at a lot of the consultant, you know, compensation studies they put out and they show you the average cost, you know, the average price or median, depending on your A, you know, they slice and dice it depending on your strategy and your size and all of those things. And there's been a pretty steady creep, especially at lower levels, more junior levels. I would say actually the more seniors have been relatively steady and the juniors have tended to creep up. Brian, how about from your perspective? What do you feel are the, the biggest challenges facing the hedge fund industry over the next few years? From my perspective, I think a, a big driver of outsourcing, in addition to the cost side of things, the regulatory side of things, where the requirements placed on funds from reporting, and that this kind of ties back into cost. That's something that we've had clients over the years that have used us. We've handled reporting for them. And I think that whole reg tech space is seeing considerable growth. And some of the reports you referenced, they are especially with regards to the asset management space, there's expectation that regulations will continue to be more onerous. Right now, we see the shift to T plus one in the US and the implications that has on asset managers globally, especially Europe. You talk a little bit about that because I wasn't aware of it until we spoke earlier this week, but shortening settlement rates, if it's happening here and it starts to happen around the world, the implications of that could be quite seismic just in terms of having to outsource that faster because if you have to get your ducks in a row before you go to bed that night because that market wakes up while you're asleep. Just talk about the dynamics of that because I found it interesting. Sure. That theme, they a few years ago, they shortened the sentiment cycle in, in Hong Kong. It's a global theme. It's happening in Canada. They're reviewing this in Mexico right now. The thinking is, I think in the UK, they're reviewing it as well. The thinking is that uh, shorter settlement cycles are more cost-effective, reduce risk, reduce margin requirements for firms. So the ideal is that, obviously, the negative is that it puts more burden on the individual funds and the operations of those funds, right? So if we're thinking about you're sitting in Europe trading into the U.S., the cycle is cut in half, but I think one survey put it at around 80% was the time reduction that back office was going to experience uh, because when you think about you come back in the next day, you don't have time. Great example are non-dollar denominated funds that have to do their FX, right? Generally do that on T plus one. There is no time on T plus one. That's a trade date activity now. And that means that's happening well into the evening in Europe, something that's having a real impact. We're seeing firms are having to shift staff to US to handle this. Do I want to pay the overhead on staffing in the US or is this something we can outsource? John, I wanted to come back to you on the topic of, of AI, actually. To what extent is AI a consideration for you, both in terms of trading, but we were just talking about hiring young new talent, but the influence that AI could have just in terms of reading research reports and just data collection, how does that factor into what you're thinking about today? Yeah. So look, it's so new in terms of ChatGPT was really the first large language model that was publicly released. I think the technology has probably been around in different forms for longer, but in terms of a public utilization. Look, I think it's going to ultimately be a, a disruptor. There are going to be parts of the process or the workflow or your day-to-day -day that are going to be better done or, or more easily done or more efficiently done, however you want to describe it, using this type of technology. I don't think we're 
close yet. I will say from a marketing perspective, sometimes it's helpful because you can maybe put your bullets and your thoughts down and it would generate something that's a little bit more clean and professional, right? So they're around the edges. We're definitely looking at different use cases for it. I think it's going to develop over time. Well, guys, we're sort of drawing to the close here. I wanted to ask any sort of final comments on the topic. Brian, I was going to start asking for, as you look out into the future, do you see any slowdown in outsourcing or the trading solutions business over the next few years, which is just going to continue to keep on tracking? I think that definitely the need for the service will continue to grow as the trends we mentioned as far as the margin compression costs, increased acceptance from the uh, asset allocator community make it much easier to do. And that's the sort of thing like we've been doing this, what, 18 years now, and the interest and acceptance to the space just in the last few has changed for the positive. I think that's it's just the beginning, right? Because if you think about the players that are in the space, the institutionalization like my firm, which is a global data analytics provider, we think about the value that is, right? We just forget about outsourcing, insourcing or any of that. What is the ideal trading desk? It's um, obviously the in- individual being skilled in the market or asset they're trading, but then the access to data and technology is really important. But beyond that, I think something that's often missed is the support teams around that. So it's not just using third-party technology and cobbling them together. It's having uh, development resources and support resources. As you see in the large funds like the platforms, their trading desks, they have very extensive support. They build specific tools for their execution teams to use. And as far as the efficiency, what that means to an end client, if you have a team that can make your trading process more efficient, customized, it allows the trader to spend more time communicating information. And that's kind of what the point is, right? It's not just saying, oh, tech for the sake of just having a shiny object. The bottom line here is that when you have better systems that are more customized to the individual process for for each client, then you're able to add greater utility in, in the role. Brian, I think you hit it perfectly when you said where there's value. So I think, look, uh, the asset management is under a free pressure environment, has been for the past five or six years, right? For various different reasons, which we we won't get into here. But there's been fee pressure in the asset management space. So now I think what asset managers are very focused on is finding the best value. What do I find valuable? Is it somebody who has technology that comes along with the service, that has consultancy that comes along with the service. It's not just the execution, right? It's like, what else can I get? And I think that's why outsource trading, to answer your question, I think is going to continue to expand because I think you have a lot of players in the space that are trying to find different angles or different value propositions to bundle it with. In addition to what you're getting, which is really in in many ways, a more eloquent solution to something you would do in-house at a a slightly better price. So with better redundancy, no HR headache, you know, all those sort of things. So you get just in and of itself, you get a benefit. But to Brian's point, I think the evolution of the space is also becoming more of a bundled service. It's execution and this execution and that. And I think that's why they'll continue to do well. Guys, I think that's a perfect time to stop. It's an exciting time for the industry. John, Best of luck with everything at Still Point. We wish you all the best. And Brian, what an exciting time to be in the industry you're in. I know you said to me earlier that if people do want to get in touch, they can get to you via email, which is brian.jepson at lseg.com. Thank you to Brian. Thank you to John. And uh, we will see you again soon. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Thank you.
The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Refinitiv entity to the listener. Refinitiv is an LSEG business. The views expressed in the podcast are not necessarily those of Refinitiv, and Refinitiv is not providing any investment, financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. Neither Refinitiv nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any and all liability, therefore, whether direct or indirect, is expressly disclaimed. For further information, visit the show notes of this podcast or refinitiv.com.